Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 29th, 2020. I am Charles Hain, host of the No Film School podcast, occasional writer at No Film School, although I just checked and I haven't written this month, uh, but I blame COVID. <gasps> uh, and I'm here with uh, editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And our guest filmmaker, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And we are going to be talking about why... And how did Sundance become the primary place where you can launch an indie film career? We're going to be talking about a brand new script format called Script Hop. In tech news, we have a major release of new features for Final Cut Pro that I found really interesting. Uh, and then all of that and an Ask No Film School all about why do investors and other kind of sponsors always want to know how you relate to the material? Um, so... All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first subject this week, and it's a subject that's in the air. If you don't enter your projects into Sundance, this doesn't feel like Sundance season because Sundance season is January. But if you enter your projects in Sundance, or if you work in the whole world of around people who enter into Sundance, Sundance season is actually September because all of the deadlines, like the early deadlines often August and then the mid deadline or like the official deadline is September. And then the late deadline might be late September, early October. It's different every year, but so it's Sundance season. Like the people I know, I mean, this year, I don't know anyone who's trying to put in anything except shorts, but like generally when I know people trying to do features or bigger stuff, it's like, it's in the can, they're trying to get it in, they're trying to get the cut lock before the deadline. It's Sundance season. So Sundance is on our minds. And I'm going to say, this is something that affects everybody in all swaths of the industry. Like, you know, for instance, I work at a film school and when we're hiring faculty, it is harder for us to hire editors in the fall because editors are so busy cutting Sundance movies in the fall. So if you're an editor with a busy career cutting indie features, it's easier for you to pick up a teaching class in the spring because it's just going to be less deadline-y, whereas September and October is so deadline-y. So that's why Sundance is on our mind. That's what we've been thinking about. And Kath had a really good point when we were talking last week. How, why Sundance? Like, why is it this, you know, like America's weird, you know, like in England, the capital of, of England is London and the media capital of England is London and you know, everything except electronic music is capitaled in London in England. And then we have Manchester for like electronic music. So, and you know, soccer, in, in, I think. and <laughs> soccer in, in, you know, in, uh, in Paris, in France, it's Paris in America, you know, our government capital is in, uh, DC, our commerce capital is in New York, our film capital is in LA. And yet weirdly, our big festival <laughs> that launches indie movie careers is in none of those cities or Houston or San Francisco, beautiful cities. It's in a little ski town in the mountains and like how and why and what. And um, I have personally a couple of theories as to how and why that is the case, but I thought it was a really nice big picture question. So before I go off on my tangent, do other people have theories? Uh, I think you did a really interesting job laying out the land there uh, and made a really interesting point that's sort of adjacent to this, which is why our nation is so <laughs> weird in that it's like not concentrated. But then I, I guess there's, this isn't true just to the United States. Like in Italy, there's like, there's Rome and then there's Milan, which is like, like there's a different capital for different types of things, I guess. But, um, 
it's funny. I always think with Sundance that it is like, how do I put this? It's like, there's certain things that exist in life where you sometimes think like, oh, we're in a timeline where that's how that went. And if you were in a different timeline, you'd be, it would sound like some alternate history where it was like, oh yeah, this movie star named this little festival after a character he played in a Western and he loved skiing. And so that, and somehow that festival became the place where young filmmaking talent was developed. And you would just say like, what? Like what weird circumstances fell together in order for, for that to be true. Like, it just doesn't sound like a, like a, like a realistic outcome in the universe. It just sounds like, so I always think it's funny when you talk about Sundance is like Sundance is a, the word is a brand associated with independent prestige, independent filmmaking, but it's the Sundance kid. It's a character from a Western. It's a man who, who was alive a long time. It's just so weird. Um, so I just, I always love being reminded of all of that. And I also, um, I also think before, Kath, I want to hear you weigh in. My thought, especially after we covered Sundance extensively on No Film School this last year, as well as many years in the past, you can find all that coverage uh, on our podcast and on the website. One thing I'm always struck by is that, and every year we have a post that covers this topic, it gets buried in all the coverage. Sundance is not the only way. Like, you'll know every year, like you said, so many people are making short films and or whatever they're making and they're thinking Sundance and if they don't get in oftentimes they feel like they missed their shot it's just not the only way it's not true it's not the only shot you're gonna get um and most people who apply don't get in that's just the way it goes yeah I think I totally agree that like it's definitely not it's not the only way. Like, it's not the only way forward. It's not the only way to, like, make progress in your career, for sure. There are so many ways to move forward in your career. I think the one thing that, like, there is an argument for is that Sundance is maybe, like, the only festival where you can go from being an indie feature filmmaker one day to being a Hollywood feature filmmaker overnight. And, like, I don't think there are many other festivals that can do that for an indie director. Um, and that is very frustrating. I remember one time I was sitting in a cafe in Fort Greene in Brooklyn and I was overhearing um, this film producer talking on the phone at the table next to me. And it piqued my interest because I'm writing and directing a film and I'm interested in you know directing more work. And he said, um, he was talking to a colleague and he said, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be really great if we could get like a up and coming female director um, you know, who's like an emerging talent, who's maybe directed like one Sundance feature. And I heard the word Sundance feature. I was like, oh my God, like how many years does it take to get a feature into Sundance? Like how many years of making shorts and failing and like getting into small festivals here and there, getting into second tier festivals, and then through some like strike of luck, getting into Sundance, it takes a really long time. And uh, this guy was just speaking very casually about like, oh, we'll just find one of those. But there's so many of us out here that are really struggling, you know, in the road leading up to that, if we'll ever get there, if, you know, maybe we won't get there, some of us. And it's still the shorthand that a lot of producers use 
to describe the people that they're looking for, you know, the talent that they're looking for, for these bigger budget projects. Yeah, no, I hear you. I know. I, I, I think, and I, and I didn't mean to be dismissive of the concept of it's the only way by saying it's not, it's, it's certainly not the only way to like a career, but I think you're right. It is, it is increasingly hard to get taken seriously out of the indie world as a filmmaker and launched into the mainstream, but mm. God, the plates are shifting well, beneath us so rapidly. That it's kind of hard to know of any well, like what is even what even is the feature film mainstream in the next couple of years? Real, real. Well, and what is Sundance going to be this January? I mean, we've heard some various reports, and I've talked to some people who sort of know. And in, in Toronto has rolled out their whole program of drive-in events, where there's going to be all sorts of drive-in events around Toronto in September, and then also globally there'll be like a Toronto Film Festival drive-in you can go to in New York and stuff. So there's. You know, we're starting to get hints of what that will look like. But I have I have sort of two thoughts on how Sundance become, became Sundance. And one of them actually involves an anecdote about how um, uh, about careers that didn't launch through Sundance. So uh, I forget the name of the programmer who just retired, but he'd been the programmer at um, Sundance for a very long time when he just retired. And I'm embarrassed to forget his name and someone will call me out in the comments and I deserve it. But he talked about how you know, someone was like, what are your regrets? And he's like, ah, oh, letting George Washington get away. George Washington, obviously David Gordon Green's first feature, and it didn't premiere at Sundance. It like that he submitted to Sundance. It did not get in. David Gordon Green has still had a magnificent career, even though his little indie first feature didn't premiere at Sundance. Really beautiful little, uh, uh, you know, small film shot with all of his film school friends from North Carolina School for the Arts at a very low budget on 35 Anamorphic, beautiful work by Tim Moore. And Part of how Sundance got to be Sundance is that kind of dedication to like his regret 20 years later is that there was a beautiful film that he could have screened at Sundance and he didn't. So like having a team of screeners that are dedicated to making sure the best work is there and sort of being the film festival that bloomed in the late 80s, early 90s when America was having sort of its indie renaissance. I think those things sort of come together to have given it this reputation where, you know, for the most part, you know, I've gone to very few truly terrible screenings at Sundance. Um, and that's not always true of every festival. On the flip side, I think that there are aspects of the geography of Sundance that benefit it. Like I always, you know, when people always ask me about NAB versus Cinegear, I always say, you know, Cinegear is wonderful, which is a film event in LA. Cinegear is wonderful, but I can't tell you the number of times I went to Cinegear and then I went on like a date that night or I went to dinner with friends or like it didn't, you know, I would do a Cinegear thing in the day and then I'd go out and do something else at night because I lived in LA. The beauty of NAB is it's in Vegas. Everybody is there. No one is from there. And so you run into someone at an event. You meet someone on a panel. You see them later at a party. You 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 try and find out what else other party to go to. It's like a different kind of spending time together. And Sundance offers us that in a way that Tribeca doesn't in New York. I've been to so many Tribeca screenings and then went out to dinner with like my wife and her sister or whatever. Like, and not gone out to a film event. I've, you know, I remember when I first moved to LA, I volunteered at the LA Film Festival because I'd lived in LA for like a month and I wanted to like meet people and make friends. I didn't make any friends. I, you know, it was just like, because everybody dispersed because we all lived there. So everybody had other things to do. Um, I did see the line for 24 hour party people, which was like a very fashionable line um, at the LA Film Festival that year, which was super fun. But like um, Sundance offers us that thing of like, when you are there and you bump into someone, 
everybody's talking about what's new and what's hot and everybody's there for one thing and everybody's going to be going out that night and everybody's going to be doing that thing. And like, that's kind of a thing. I mean, that you know, I think it's no accident that Cannes is the big film festival in France, not Paris. Right. Yeah. No, I think those are good points that it has like a good networking and, and social opportunity. And I think you and I have discussed on this podcast and, and in person before that there's this weird, <laughs> there's a weird thing of Sundance where everyone in Hollywood or LA knows like, you may not see or interact with someone for a long time, but you'll run into them at Sundance and it'll seem special and you'll, or you'll know you're both going and you'll exchange this chain of texts that are like, we should totally hang out in Park City. It's like, we wouldn't, ne- we're not hanging out in LA and we live there every other month of the, like 11 months of the year. But, but when we're in Park City, yes, you're right. We should totally like link up. It's just one of those weird LA things, uh, Sundance things. But to the point, I think, um, I think sometimes we get in a trap. I knew somebody working on a short and they told me they were wrapping up and they said something like, all right, now we're just crossing our fingers for Sundance. And I kind of wanted to say like, don't, you know, like, like just, just don't. And just think about what else you could do. And then if that happens, that's like amazing. But, but part of it is because it's not just the, it's, it's, there's two levels of, of my jadedness there. One is just like, oh yeah, getting in is like extremely difficult, but I've learned, and I really hope I've been able to help communicate this through working at No Film School to the listeners and the readers. In the, we've interviewed festival programmers uh, from Sundance. We've interviewed um, one of the earliest, like founders, co-founder directors from the very beginning. We've talked to you know countless filmmakers, like, and all of that is on the podcast and the website. You can find tons of that stuff. But I hope that one of the things that has been communicated through all that is that it's not just about getting in. There's also like, even once you're in, it's it's not a sure thing that anything's going to happen besides for your movie will play there or your short. And I think that that is like another, it's, it sounds like like a raining on the parade thing, but it's actually like, there's no guarantees. Uh, even you're, You could be there, you could be featured, you could even win something. I've interviewed filmmakers who were there with their film and they're overwhelmed and it's amazing and they have these big premieres and it's exciting and they're like, you know, rushing between media and stuff. And the film doesn't get a big release. It gets a little release that people don't re- that doesn't cut through the noise and they move on to the next thing. And that's kind of the nature, I think, of this industry. There isn't, there's so rarely like, like that, like Steven Soderbergh and the bidding war. Like it's so uncommon and like Palm Springs was a big thing this last year. And it, and it managed to also, as we talked about in another episode, break out and be a big thing when it was released streaming this summer. That's so rare. That's like triple layer rare. <laughs> like, well, but so also, I think we should just stop thinking. Yeah, go ahead. Palm Springs wasn't created by a bunch of unknowns. It was produced by the Lonely Island team. It was starring a bunch of established people. It wasn't like, Exactly. You, know, you and your friends. And that makes it even yeah, so more like, like of a long, like it's even more like, oh, you just can't be a guy out or girl out of left field. Like, and, and expect those things. You have to be, you have to think about it as a possibility, but also think about what are the new ways. Was it last year or maybe two years ago? I, inter- I ran into a friend there who I've been working with or worked with in LA for like a decade. He'd had shorts at Sundance. 
He was starring in a feature at Sundance. It felt like a really big year for him, and it was. And, you know, like he's still looking for the next thing, you know? It's 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 a grind, I guess, is my is my thinking. And when I think about it, like Sundance may not even open the doors that you think it will. That's the reality. Well, I was going to say my first ever internship when I moved to L.A. when I was 20, I interned at a management company. And I remember that the assistant to the manager had just gotten back from Sundance and he was so excited. And he had like he was talking to the dude who had just won best short. This is 20 years ago. And he was like, the dude who's just won best short at Sundance guaranteed to get a feature made. I'm going to be working with him. We're going to figure this out. And, you know, I just looked up the guy who won best short that year. And he, 20 years later, has not made a feature and works in tech now. My buddy won best short at Sundance about 15 years ago and made a feature again last, like made a feature last year after 12, 12 or 13 years after Sundance. And it was like a very small budget, 150,000 or 100,000 something. He just knew an investor. And like it came together after 10 years, like it's hard and Sundance is not a guarantee of anything. So it's like, you know, it's, I think it's also a little bit of path dependence or not path dependence. What's that phenomenon? Uh, there's a name for it where when you get really interested in something, you see it everywhere. Like whenever a, whenever a filmmaker goes from nowhere to studio, uh, we don't really think of it as a story, but whenever anyone goes from Sundance to studio, mm. we think of it as a Sundance success. Yes. And yes. so we're very aware of it. And we're like, oh, Justin Lin. Oh, P.T. Uh, not P.T. Anderson. Um, Wes Anderson. Oh, like all of these filmmakers broke out. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, obviously. Oh, and P.T. What am I thinking? Of course, P.T. Um, but then all of the people who follow the other paths that never had anything at Sundance and managed to direct a studio movie or managed to, you know, get a, a project financed with all sorts of good people in it without going through Sundance. We just don't think of. You know, and so I think it's one of those things of like, you know, I'm very into land cruisers and I got my wife into land cruisers and she started seeing them everywhere after I bought one. And she was like, <laughs> oh, they're everywhere. And I, I think there's a bit of there's a name for this phenomenon. Please yeah. correct me in the Twitters. And I think there's a bit of that with Sundance where we see it. But then, you know, so many filmmakers had their first thing at South by so many filmmakers had their first thing at Tribeca. So many filmmakers never got into a festival at all. And then somehow, you know. Like, uh, there's a, uh, there was an indie, the guys who made stranger things did an indie feature that I think didn't really play at any major festivals, but it was like a horror indie and got distribution and got them stranger things. So you know like, it, uh, but, you know, a, an optimistic spin that I just want to throw out at the end because I was so negative about things like I, and I do think this is true. One cool, really cool thing about Sundance is that it has a massive community and they're very much involved in one another's careers and mentorships and the labs are a great way. And there's all kinds of labs and programs that are not related to features. Even there's an indie episodic uh, program. There are all kinds of ways and opportunities for filmmakers to get involved. And there's also Sundance collab that they started, which, you know, you can subscribe to the newsletter and, and just become more, they're, they're, they're great at educating and that's a primary focus there. So there are ways to connect to that community and learn from it and maybe get in a lab and maybe develop and then that could lead to things too. Like it doesn't just have to be the the the, the way we think of like the the indie filmmaker who shows up sight unseen. It's true that there's there's there are many ways forward. I think that uh, Charles, like you mentioned, that like this. What did you call it? Path dependence or something like that. Once you start seeing it, you start seeing it everywhere. The name Sundance just has this like prestige to it 
that like people can use it as a shorthand and getting that seal of approval does really help. But it is up oh, yeah. to the filmmaker to have that next step in mind and to be, you know, it's up to you to be ready to to do whatever is next for you. And I think, so yeah, definitely, like you said, getting something into Sundance is not going to make or break your career. I kind of think of like, um, like it, it reminds me of like back in high school when the goal was like everyone, you, you have to get into an Ivy League. I went to a really competitive school, so that's sort of what it felt felt like. You have to get into an Ivy League. If you can get into an Ivy League, you've totally accomplished your goal. Everything else for the rest of your life will be smooth sailing. And then you get to that school and you're like, wait a minute, actually, there's a whole nother world on the other side of this. I knew nothing. And I think that Sundance- Did, did you get to an Ivy League? I didn't actually go to an Ivy League, but <laughs> uh, from from what I know uh, from my community and yeah, I think- Yeah, no, like, my friends who went to Ivy's were mostly pretty depressed. <laughs> Yeah, because you realize like, oh, God, my whole life was building up to this and I have no idea why or what it's for. I think maybe. Well, I mean, it's not directly related, but there is that uh, expression um, expectations are just future resentments. Like anytime you place too much. I imagine there are many people who won Best Short at Sundance who were very sad after because they had pinned so much hope on thinking like this will mean X for my career. This will mean right. Y for my career or whatever. I can't speak to the two people I know who've done it because I don't think it made either of them sad, but I bet it has made some of them because you, you know, there is this idea. I think everybody has this idea that at some point their career will feel more safe, stable. They will have made it. They will be like in a position where they can, you know, but it's like, it's a whole long process of just trying to tell the stories you want to tell. Man. And yeah. If sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say, if there, like a piece of advice I wish I could give a younger self, a younger myself would be to not think that there's something that happens that then triggers easy street in this field or something like that. Like there's not, like it seems like that, that, this, that, um, there's this mirage of like you can get there and it's like locked in. And I think what I've seen the longer I've been around here is that, that it doesn't work that way. It seems like it does because we know of those people because they're, they're famous, but there's such a small percentage of the actual working population that it's not, it, it, it's just not what happens. It's not like that one thing happens and then, Oh, now I'm working forever. <laughs> it just doesn't go that way. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I was actually just reading an interview with Jason Siegel because I was curious about what Jason Siegel's been up to. And he uh, described that exact same feeling of like getting on How I Met Your Mother and then realizing like, oh, I got here to the place that I thought I was supposed to get to and that, you know, it would like make all my dreams come true or whatever. And it's, I still feel the same. Everything's still the same. Um, and still then, a person. Yeah. And still, you know, having to keep hustling for opportunities or not hustling for opportunities, however you choose to live your life. But yeah. Yeah. If you think about it for the actor, which is like this other side of filmmaking, we don't often talk about, but it does mirror things in some ways, you know, getting a, getting an audition for a pilot, getting on a pilot, a pilot going to series, mm -hmm. a pilot getting renewed, like mm -hmm. getting a better deal, like not being recast or cut or like, gosh, there's so many hurdles and then even then what happens when the show ends and then like you're mm -hmm. looking for another thing and then and you're like you typecast is the one thing that you already were or right or maybe you need 
to make more money because maybe you didn't like, there's so many things that can happen that can leave you in a position where it's like, okay, now what? And I think if you're expecting that grind to end in this industry, then that, then you will be very disappointed. Like, and the best thing is to, to recognize that, um, the grind keeps going. Yeah. I look around too, and I'm amazed at like how short the festival, uh, the festival year is. I mean, obviously it's as short as a year, <laughs> but I'm like, wait, Sundance just happened. Now we're already into the next Sunday. Like, wow, this is, it just feels fast to me all of a sudden. Like, mm. well, it did, it really, it's still March, really. Like March, March became September suddenly, but it's not even September soon. It's still, that's March. true. It's COVID we're year. Tra- so we're in March, 2020. <laughs> okay. On that front, let's talk about continuing to grind. So what's the number one thing we always say that everybody can do to grind no matter what? Write. Everybody who's like, I don't know how to get a feature made or I don't know how to do anything. Every day, everybody should be writing. That is the number one skill you should keep improving uh, all the time. Now, when you're done with your screenplay, uh, you have to send it to people. And there is a new platform that is coming out called Scriptop that we wrote up on the No Film School website. And it is designed to make, to create a package that makes your script more attractive to a reader. So, you know, uh, my second job in the film industry was as a script reader at Creative Artists Agency and a couple other places. And like, you know, back in the day we got paper scripts, you had to go into the office and pick up paper scripts and sign them out. Now it's all PDF with like secret readers and passwords and watermarking and whatnot. But like, you know, they're all pretty much the same. You open a page, it looks like black text on a white page and it's all Courier or Courier Prime and it all looks the same and it's all about the content. Scriptop is designed to gussy it up a little bit. You can have an opening animated sequence. You can have character bios. You can have script synopsis. You can include ideal casting photos. There's all sorts of stuff like it here. I'm going to say most of the stuff we cover, I'm sort of a fan of. I am deeply suspicious of script top actually taking off. <laughs> Why? I think, well, I think, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I mean, so first off, like the skills that make you a great screenwriter don't necessarily make you a great animator. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the animated sequence opening many scripts is going to be terrible. <laughs> like either a screenwriter is going to do it themselves or they're going to sucker their friend into doing it. And it's going to be real cheese balls. additionally a lot of this stuff is stuff that already shows up in like a producer's packet right where a producer is trying to fundraise for a film and so a lot of it's very familiar from that but the script is this like 50 to 80 year old i mean scripts were different before world war ii but like you know the last 80 years of the film industry have been built around passing these scripts around in the simplest way possible having your professional readers or your assistants ingest them evaluate them as best as possible. And the thing we are all still looking for more than anything else is a well-written script with a compelling story. And can you tell a little bit about that from like character bios at the beginning and ideal casting shots? Maybe, but like also like think about it, think about all of the people. The reason why this is the, a lot of this stuff shows up just in a producer's packet because a producer is going to an investor and an investor might not have a great imagination. Like, let's be honest, if they made all of their money in some boring thing. Um, and so, of course, you're going to have to have like, oh, I might think about casting these three people for the role or whatever. But like, you know, a script's job as a filmmaker is not just to go out to 
investors, it's also going out to agencies. An agency doesn't need a list of your casting ideas. An agency is going to read that script and they're going to look for every possible way they could make money off that by putting their big talent in it and attaching it to make a project. I remember there's a story I heard from a writer who had a meeting with, uh, who somehow he'd written a script and uh, I want to say Dustin Hoffman somehow read it. And in the script, it was written as like a 35 year old and Dustin Hoffman was 55 and, and Dustin Hoffman like called him in for a meeting and was like, the 55 year old guy could play this. Right. And the writer was like, of course. <laughs> and you know, cause wanted to get the movie made. So like, I don't know that it benefits the writer to have a ideal cast attachment list the way it does for a producer. I totally could see producers trying to use a tool like this, but it's really t- script top. The website is currently very targeted towards writers and, and for me, as as a writer's tool, unless you happen to be that magic writer who's also a great animator and can build a cool animated sequence, I mean, I feel like a little bit like you remember like 2004, 2005, every time you'd go to a production company's website, there'd be like an animated intro bullshit thing. Um, like like rain would fall and then like someone would rise from the rain and then it would like take you to the main website. You guys might be too young for this. I feel like it's a little bit of that of like, you know, it's my, when I was a reader, it was five scripts every Sunday. Most of the film industry is reading four or five scripts every Sunday. They just want to get into the script and see if it is good or not. I, I, I think this is one of those things that I just don't, I don't see sticking. I, I'm going out of limb. I could well be wrong. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it definitely seems like a tool that might be more appropriate for a writer director. But even in that case, you still have like, I don't know what a producer's packet is. It sounds like a lookbook or similar. But with a lookbook, you know, you're providing like, oh, potential. These are like uh, ideas that we have for cast. This, these are the character bios. These are some images of locations that we're interested in. These are our comps um, and all that. There is sort of a structure in place to take care of a lot of those things. Um, I do know that like Trey Edward Schultz, when he made Waves, he wrote the script and he had links to the specific songs that he wanted to play over different sequences so that people could listen on Spotify like while they were reading his script. That's pretty cool. That I don't is know, cool. I don't know how you do that. Can you do that with Final Draft? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Well, you can do that. You can put links in a PDF and everybody reads by PDF now. So yeah, you could totally do that with like whatever your script writing software is. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Do we need this new tool? It sounds neat, but I think you might be right that like for for just, for people who are just writers, it's probably more bells and whistles than they would want to take advantage of and actually need to take advantage of. I'll play a little devil's advocate, but I will have to concede initially one point, which is that things like this don't typically take off because it just seems very hard to get the industry this entertainment industry, the film industry, film and television industry to adopt technology. Um, it's just like you're you're likely to see someone using a pen and a paper on a set. You know, like there's like there's a slow adjustment. It's not a although scriptation has taken over completely. Yeah, if you haven't so, used scriptation, scriptation is, it? is a it's a note taking process for PDF scripts. That's really, you know, because like the way I work is I I have an open binder of my script, my script's on the right side, and I have all my notes on the left of like camera move here and beat change here and all that. And it's really hard whenever you 
rewrite and you get like goldenrod pages and pink pages and stuff to like keep track of your notes and keep them synced to where they belong on the page. Scriptation is an app. The entire film industry has taken over where you have a PDF and you can note on the PDF. And then as new pages come in, the notes stay stuck to the script. I think that's actually a fair point though, that like that seems to solve an existing issue. Whereas Scriptop is like, an added bonus, but not necessarily solving a problem that we have. It is definitely a solution without a problem. I'll say my, here's my defense of it. As a person who's been a screenwriter and pitched and tried to sell and done a lot of that business, I've done this, the work that Script Top does often. I think depending on where you are in your career, it can be something that feels necessary and helpful or something that like in Charles's examples is completely unnecessary for a lot of screenwriters who are maybe already working with an agent or a manager, they will likely not be, and they're at a certain level, they will likely not need to suggest casting because, you know, maybe that it'll get right to a producer who will already be attached and they'll all be in a package or whatever. However, at various stages, it's important to do things that get people to feel enticed by whatever you're presenting. And words on a page, look, the dirty secret or not so secret thing about the industry is that people don't read. They say they read, but a lot of people don't read. And you, it, it's appalling sometimes. And, and yet it's also understandable because there's so much stuff to read. So you know, so a lot of people are like Charles said, like, I think going through tons of scripts, doing script notes, doing coverage, but they're also probably skimming at a certain point or they're like, oh, another one. It's like anything you do over and over and over again is going to get repetitive. And the the cliches or conventions that you see on the first page and then become sort of like the, the challenge for a writer, if you don't have a name and you don't have an on, a foot in the door immediately somehow with with the person reading your script is to cut through the noise is to make them think it's different and to get them to pay attention to the words on the page and why the, and get them rolling. Of course, at the end of the day, quality of script is not going to be living and dying on your character bio page. But if you can do something, anything, I believe that might catch their eye or make them think that there's something there that ex- that's exciting. I think it's worth pursuing. So I don't know if I could say with certainty that this will work, but I think that there's a potential here to build something that helps people who don't want to read every word of every script because they're not going to do it anyway, right? Maybe they can just skim this the the cliff notesy script notes script top thing and decide like, oh, that looks good to me. I want to read that. Like that, I think that's where where this the sweet spot for this one i think it's in that like range where it's like this isn't a demand read and i've read a bunch but but i kind of like the summary and the images and whatever but i think that like the example of putting the songs from spotify links in your script is like first off original hadn't heard of it so it stands out because it's original it's not like everybody else doing script pop but it's also like this just seems like such an opera. Like I'm just picturing these and I'm like 99% of them are going to hurt the script, not help it. I'm picturing like scripts I know written by good people who are just like not great at synopsing, not great at like casting, not great at, but like write a great script and it's just hurting them, not helping them. And again, there's already a whole system in the industry where 
everybody has their assistants write coverage. Like people aren't expecting to read scripts until they've read the coverage of it already, which is doing the same purpose, but is created by someone you trust because you employ them and you trained them and you've grown them hopefully over time to know how to do it properly. I, I don't know. Yeah, gonna- I think, I, again, I think this is aimed at, I think the success of something like this is targeted to people who are trying to get someone to consider them in their work. And like, so maybe I'm trying to raise money for an indie feature and I don't have a manager and I wrote a script that I think is really good, but I want to get it to an investor and I don't have a producer working with me yet. Or maybe I'm going to be the producer or like maybe me. And oh yeah. Then, else. then it's great for that. Right. Then maybe I need to build out something that can help get my investor, like not through the normal routes. Maybe I need to do something that's sort of like, Hey investor, you want to make money in the, you want to make a movie? Like, here's my movie. Here's how you can, like you said, like some people may not see it on the page, but I think you're right. If you're trying to get someone to see it on the page and there's all those, uh, things in place already, like script notes from a reader and coverage, then maybe this isn't going to help you. Um, moving on to tech news. So our big tech news this week, final cut, Apple's premier editing platform just came out with a big release. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, there's first off, there's a whole bunch of cool new features and we'll talk about the cool new features. But the reason why I was so interested in this is we talked about this a lot in the podcast earlier on, um, back uh, in the pandemic that we are currently living through. Um, back in March or April, there were a whole bunch of software that updates that came out from people that clearly everyone was like, oh, we're all locked at home and we need to like fix something about our software for home release. I, Zoom had a big update in mid-April that I remember Zoom was like, if you don't update to five, it's going to stop working and, and all that stuff. Because as we all shifted to this work from home thing, a lot of people came out with software updates that felt rushed, that felt like, oh, this is happening. Let me make sure I'm like ready for it. And this Final Cut Pro update is the first that feels like, oh, you've taken time and evaluated the work from home remote workflow future, and you have put some real work into developing and making an easier work from home or remote workflow sharing work more easily with remote teams workflow for your projects. Good for you. And so the this Final Cut Pro... Um, is really all about making it easier to move a Final Cut Pro project from machine to machine, be it on an external hard drive, be it on using iCloud Drive, however you're doing it, although the iCloud Drive integration is kind of slick, um, making it so that all of the media you're using gets wrapped up in a, in a single library, you zip that library up, drop it in iCloud Drive, drop it in SSD, and somebody else can just immediately keep working on the project. So really good media collection and proxying tools, and then a really deep integration with Frame.io so that you can be dragging media straight from Frame.io into your bins and sort of working off the Frame.io proxies really quickly. So it's sort of an impressive that I feel like we're about to see a whole wave this fall of the big manufacturers being like, oh, this is our new world now. And we've been in it for five or six months and we're going to start deploying tools that really accept that this is where our attention belongs. So that's what I think is kind of cool about Final Cut Pro. There's a couple other neat little like feature improvements. Like you can now apply LUTs and compressor, which frankly, when they pointed that out, I didn't realize you couldn't do LUTs and compressor, but you, you really should be able to do LUTs and compressor. Like let's say you're shooting in log 
and you want to make your dailies have Rec 709 on them, you'd need to drop a LUD on it or transform. And Compressor can now do that. I kind of feel like they're maybe two years late to that, but whatever, they're here. Um, and then really fascinatingly, I never use Motion. I always forget that Motion's still being developed, um, but they're still working on Motion, which is their like motion graphics and, and uh, sort of like CG is the wrong word, like motion graphics tool, sort of their After Effects competitor. And they added support to this to full USDZ uh, 3D objects. USD 3D. USDZ 3D objects. It was a format invented by Pixar. So it's a 3D object that comes with all its shading. You know, an OBJ is the 3D object we often think of, but that's just a shape. You have to like shade it yourself or add textures or whatever. A USDZ, you can go in TurboSquid and buy a pre-built spaceship or buy a pre-built Earth or buy a pre-built like Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and just, and it comes like fully built in 3D with all of its textures. And you can just bring it in and start animating it. Um, so that is a big, big, big step forward for motion uh, that that is all working and working super well. So sort of a big techie day for Final Cut Pro. Do you guys find that there's a lot? I mean, you both are kind of linked into the educational world or have been. Is Final Cut Pro still... Like, what's the market like right now? What is the user? Because I feel like... Docs. Docs is the main thing. Is there a reason why? The media organization tools in Final Cut Pro are really stellar. So, like, the big corporate docs, like, or PBSs and NetGeos, those are all still avid. But independent docs, uh, you know, like the doc, the passion project docs that are, like, one person editing alone for four years on something, Final Cut Pro has really taken off there because it's got the most robust metadata tagging, which just makes it way easier when you're working on a doc over several years to keep track of all your footage. So Final Cut Pro has really taken off in that market. That's it's really good kind to of know. Popular. Hmm? That's really good to know because I've been using Premiere this whole time, but I kind of feel like I wish I had more metadata options. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Resolve is coming close. Like every resolve update comes up with like three or four like steps closer to all the metadata tools in Final Cut Pro. But Final Cut Pro, I mean, that is still their whole thing is like, you know, I know multiple doc editors who are like, oh, yeah, at at work when I have to go to an office and do an NBC thing that is avid. But now my personal things or my like passiony things are Final Cut Pro because the media management tools are so solid. And resolve is also working. Resolve is working specifically to catch up with the tagging and keywording. They're also working to catch up with uh, machine learning face recognition. So Resolve will now watch all of your footage and then tag everybody's faces in it. So like if you're working on a narrative and you want to see every shot in a movie with one character in it, it'll watch all your footage and be able to bring it all up like, like based on we... face recognition, which is... Do we hmm? want that? That sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I could... I could... Like I can look at the footage. Face recognition is not scary in that world. It's really scary in like police camera footage. I mean, frankly, that seems gimmicky to me and I don't know anyone who actually uses it on a day-to-day -day basis, but I thought it was a like cool implementation. Um, yeah, Premiere Media Management, they're really lacking. I don't know why they're not picking up the pace there in my opinion, but that's just me. Yeah, and then our last topic this week, we uh, had an Ask No Film School. Kath actually specifically wanted to ask and also give her opinions on. Uh, Kath, do you want to phrase the question? Well, um, I've been filling out a lot of grant 
grants lately, applying for grants and labs and residencies and stuff and um, sitting in on panels where people tell us how to apply for those things. And the question that I think comes up or, you know, the, 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 what a lot of these people who review our applications say is that the question that matters most to them is why are you the one to tell this story? And I can appreciate that for sure. And I think I generally have a good answer for that, but I think, you know, does that, does that question mean that we all have to be like really interesting people to make movies? I mean, what if you don't have a clear answer to that question? Um, I don't know. I thought we could just discuss. Are you submitting or are you reviewing ones that have been submitted? I am submitting myself. So, I mean, I have, I have such a mixed bag of thoughts on this. So in one level, I feel like this is a little bit something that we've stolen from the business world. Like famously, when you look in the business world, like investors are always like, the most important question I have is, why are you the one I should invest in to build this business? Like what special insight or experience do you have that makes you the one that I should give this $20 million to to build a food delivery app or whatever? And this feels a little bit like that coming over into film. Like, Mm -hmm. why is it that you are the special magic one to do it? And, you know, so many of my favorite movies are these deeply personal movies for their creators. But so many of my movies, favorite movies are also like just a subject they were interested in that had nothing to do with their own personal life. Right. Like I, I recently rewatched there will be blood, which I love, but like PT Anderson is just a dude from the Valley. He didn't grow up mining oil. Um, you know, he loves California, but like, it's just a story he got worked up about that doesn't relate to his personal life. I think, I mean, maybe he, you know, murdered a dude on a film set and then adopted that son (laughs) to raise money for movies. I don't think so, you know, and I don't think he's beaten anyone to death. So I think that there's this interesting thing, but I also think it's a little bit, the reason why that's so important in the business world is because so many people quit so easily, right? Like the defining characteristic of most businesses is in their first five years, there's like a dozen times where everybody could just quit and wrap it up and you have to keep going and push through it and ignore it and keep going. And in business, that's probably really rare. And a lot of investments fail. A lot of investments never happen. You know, you invest money in it and the product never comes out. In film, I don't even know how often that happens. Like I personally don't know that many people that raised money for a movie and then didn't finish the movie. I know a couple of people who like shut a documentary on something and then never finished editing it for whatever reason, like really small stuff, not invested in. But what everybody I know who's been through some sort of grant or workshop or investment process finished the project because we're filmmakers and we love what we do and we fight so hard to do it. And so if the question is meant to weed out the people who are like only half, oh, this is a tangent, but I'm going to tell it. When I was a DP, I shot a feature once this was right before the economic collapse. And he was a guy who made a bunch of money um, in mortgages. And then he'd gotten laid off by his mortgage company. It was right before the collapse came. And he was like, I'm going to use this money to direct a movie. And like, he just didn't care. Like I cared 50 times more than he did. Like he just had a bunch of money and always wanted to direct a movie and did not give a shit. And we wrapped and he just like cracked open a beer and watched the football. It was so weird. (laughs) But like, That's my only experience of that. Like in my years as a DP, directors always cared. Like everybody cares so much in movies that I don't know that like that question of like, well, why do you, why are you so connected to it? It's like, if, if you have the burning passion to make it, like that's the defining characteristic of most of film. So we don't have to weed people out around that. I think. Um, I feel like they're asking this question because they're trying to find artists that they can invest in not just projects so they're trying to find like people that they think will be 
I don't know, like interesting enough, trendy enough. What, Am I so just like super negative? I, I have, know. I have, I have some questions. So, Kath, do you, what do you usually put? How do you answer that question? So it was, it's funny because I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day where I'm submitting, uh, I'm submitting an application for a residency, and I wrote to my friend. I was like, "What do you think of my?" Um, my uh, summary and logline for my film. My film is an Asian American film because I'm an Asian American person and the lead is an Asian American. Um, but I don't feel the need to talk about that a lot. And so what she said is, well, you should make your logline and summary more Asian American, like heighten that and heighten the fact that you're Asian American in your bio, make it clear that you are like a woman of color or like a BIPOC filmmaker that they can then support. Um, so, so when I answer those questions, I am often sort of like speaking in that language, but, uh, it starts to get exhausting. I'm sort of like on a tangent here, but it's no, just like- I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, it's the, it's the answer that I think, a lot, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I think that any of us who've been around the last, like years ago, I, wouldn't not that I ever was a person who had a this question wasn't being asked um maybe 10 15 years ago Charles did you ever see this question or this concept tossed around like maybe 10 years ago ish like with film with the industry I, with Sunday I would say festival? 10 years ago is when I started seeing it okay so then I'm, so maybe I'm going even farther back back in the day I'm not going to put a year on it but like this is a relatively new phenomenon right can mm-hmm. we agree like and I think that it's the fact that there's so many more niches and nowadays it's more about connecting content to a niche to cut through the noise because we're not just creating mainstream fare that goes out on the platforms that exist, which is like a handful of channels and a few big movie studios to mm. the audience. Like we're, we're seeing more niche things succeed. This started a long time ago, but it's really become the, the norm now. So, I, but I also think it's about diversity and in a good way that I think it's like, Hey, we get a lot of, there's like a bit of a monoculture thing and like typically white male voices dominate and what are the other voices and how can we make it about those stories? But I think it's an interesting point that there's a danger to that, which is that then we're asking people to only represent, to only tell stories that connect to their, whatever they are, right? Right. Their profile. And that's not what we want, right? That's not the universe that like, and and it's not fair to creatives to say like you have to pitch your thing. What's your mm-hmm. thing? Where, what's your what's your race? Like what's your, what's mm-hmm. your gender? What's your sexual orientation? Like sell me on that because I can sell the festival on that you are the this thing. Well, it's another form of privilege. It's it's basically saying white dudes get to make movies. You know, because like I can name like so many straight white make, male filmmakers who make movies that aren't about their own childhoods, that aren't about their own experience, that aren't about, you know, like they're making movies you, set in different cultures. You just did because Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Yeah. He can make a movie well, about but, anyone and anything. Well, and also so many male directors have done female-led movies in the history of cinema. Many but of them yet, badly. He, <laughs> many of them badly. A couple of them okay. Um, and yet we're expecting female filmmakers. Like if you look in the Marvel universe, the female directors, everyone's excited. There's some female directors, but they're only given the shots at the female 
driven movies, although men have di- directed many female driven uh, action movies as well. So like, and doesn't it, it feel it a little like kind of thing of like, yeah, but isn't it how a wonderful like- would it be if Kath was getting opportunities to direct Thor and not just having to use her personal experience as a, as a diversifier. Right. I, and I think that, um, I think that that part of the problem is that we're conflating a couple things, which is this is this idea of perspective and POV is something I've heard a lot. And I've tried to convey a lot to our readers and listeners about opportunity. Like every programmer I've ever spoken to and every executive and every agent, everybody who, when, when you ask the, what makes you pick, pick that movie when like going back to Sundance, like what they always tell me is like, when I say the thing, like, how do you pick the movies? You know, which is the question they get the most in their lives. <laughs> they, their, their answer is usually like, POV, like a filmmaker with a story they have to tell, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because it helps cut through the noise. But I think we want to be careful not to force people or pigeonhole people into like the sell your sell your Eunice. Um, And I think we should just like my my thought about this whole thing is like it would be good if we opened it up to being like, I have to tell this story because uh it is something that I love, not because of of what the color of my skin is, or where I was born, or what my dad treated me like, you know, like, but because, or who I want to marry, like, but because I just think it's a great story, and I'll prove to you why. Like, I think we could we could make a subtle adju- a shift, maybe in the how we present the POV thing. But I just know when I was coming in. I didn't have to, I wasn't faced with this. And as a white male, I probably would never have been because I get to do, you know, like in so many ways, like I get to do whatever I want, but there's a little bit, there's a potential for the backfiring there. And I think it's important for us to try and find ways to present our, why it's our story or why it's your story without it just being because that's my background, you know? Right. Rather than just why are you the one to tell the story, which seems to be a leading question. Like it has, uh, yeah. and they are expecting a particular kind of answer. You could ask, why are you passionate about this story? I mean, I think, you know, we are, are we're living in a cultural moment in which that, you know, personal stories from very diverse reaches of society are what people are looking for, what people are looking to fund. I wonder how long it's going to last. Um, the indie movie I whoa. made a while ago, I co-wrote with an Asian American friend of mine who is, you know, my writing partner and friend. And we made this movie together and we ended up casting one of the leads was an Asian American, but it had nothing to do with my friend being Asian American or the plot. It was just because he was the right actor. and We really liked him and we didn't, it wasn't like part of what the story was. It wasn't like part of how we tried to sell it. It wasn't like, it didn't factor in in any way because it wasn't like, and in hindsight, there were times in the years since where we were like, man, we should have like played it up or something or like tried to turn it into a thing where then maybe we would have been more likely to crack through because that's something that's been happening. Right. But it wasn't really on our radar at the time. And it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't something that people were looking for yet. Mm. But yeah, but that I is do- definitely something that happens when you're like a person of color or woman or, you know, have some sort of like other otherness you know like a separateness from the norm then you sort of have to learn how to talk about it in a way that makes sense 
to the people that are reading these applications. But, but also feels authentic and not disgusting to you. And that's the trick, right? Is to find a way to be like, what are the things right. I'm comfortable? Yeah. Like, how am I comfortable communicating it? Although I also think that there's some potential to like, just ignore what their obvious intention is when they're asking the question and just talk about whatever you want. I mean, I remember reading an interview with the writer of hidden figures when she was up for the job. Um, she was like, I grew up around NASA and like my parents are around NASA. So like, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily who you might normally think of for this job, but like, I know this world so well, there will be things about this world. I have insight to that. Like have nothing to do with like, I mean, maybe being a NASA mm-hmm. kid is a, is a, mm-hmm disadvantage in like or like a uh, <laughs> diversity issue i don't think it is i think it's just like so like you know just finding a way to like you know like i've definitely when talking to people about why something was so passionate like when trying to get project made talking about what was interesting to me about them just gone on like very specific rants about like what in my life experience engaged me in it like in the story. And I think yeah, that's I, like a, I was going to ask you, Charles, like I was going to ask you, I was going to put the question to you as well, because you're not writing grants, at least that I know of, but you're certainly always creating things and pitching things and working on stuff. And I've heard you talk about projects or, and about your life in the context of like, well, I grew up in the Midwest or I grew up in this town. And so I made this kind of movie or like I connected to this kind of, like, I think like, I guess my question to you is like, do you use your background and your life experience when you're trying to create, you know, a reason why you all should the, be the guy? Right. <laughs> all the time. But I didn't realize it until 10 years in. It was 10 years into making stuff where someone was like, is there a unifying quality in everything you've made? And I look back and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really interested in American regionalism. I'm really <laughs> interested in displacement within America. I'm really interested in stories of people who are in one spot in America and taken to someone else and feel completely disoriented and isolated by it. And like, that's my thing. I had no idea it was my thing. I didn't see that pattern in all of the things I did. And then someone, actually someone I teach with, Paula Masood, who's very wonderful, was like asking me about my work. And I realized that. And now in the last two years, every time I've tried to like apply for a grant or whatever, or try and get something fundraised or, or interview something about my work, like that comes up a lot in conversation, but it's not something I set out to do. And it's certainly not something that like when I was in film school, if I'd had to write a grant, I wouldn't have been like, I have a deep sense of my American regional identity and how disorienting <laughs> it is to be the, like, it's just a thing that like I made the things that I was interested in making. And then I look back and I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's my thing. And See, if I'm, if I put on the producer hat or like the working at a production company hat and I'm looking at possible people and I see a resume where it's like, or I just see a person where it's like they, they present themselves as like, this is what I, these are the stories that resonate with me. These are the things I like to talk about. These are, then it's like, oh, well, I know what he is. Maybe not for this, right? But I know now I'll remember and I know that guy. He's got a thing. I've got a label for him. And I think the, the unfair part that we're talking mm-hmm. about is that it's not fair when the label isn't like, this is what interests Catherine Tolentino. It's, this is who she is because this is like her background. This is her ethnicity. This is her gender. This is her, like, mm-hmm. that's the problem. Like, I think we're just like circling that issue that it's like, you should sort of choose what the thing is that you become that represents you, that your work is, instead of it being like, oh, I have to sell that thing because that's what makes me different in the eyes of them, of the, you know, whatever. 
And for the record, I'd love to do something that wasn't about American regional dislocation. Like, I'm not tied to that being the only thing I ever get to make. Um, Although the thing I'm writing right now is deeply about that. Uh, So, you know, uh, maybe I'm not trying to stop telling that story anytime soon. Maybe it finds its way in other things. You never know. I mean, it's good to know those things about yourself as a creative, I think. It's good to know your grinds. All right. On the grinds, let's plug our pluggables. Uh, Kath? Yeah. So um, I have a short film that's on the festival circuit right now called Parachute. And you can follow us on Instagram at parachute.film. And we'll be in a number of festivals in September and October. So follow us and keep your eyes peeled. I can also be found online at katherinetolentino.com. I'm George Edelman, editor at No Film School. You can find a lot of cool things that we talked about today and a whole lot more on nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Ask us questions. Email us at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. And I just, because we talked about writing earlier with Script Top, I just want to remind everybody again that we have a 100 page free ebook about how to write a screenplay in 10 weeks. You can do it if you're sitting around at home alone or with people on lockdown. And this 10-week program is great. It includes some breaks. It will take you through step-by-step. You will finish whatever it is you're working on. You'll have information about log lines, about beat sheets, about all that stuff. And uh, and it's fun and there's examples and it's free. All you have to do is sign up for the newsletter. So uh, how to write a screenplay is uh, just search nofilmschool.com or go to how to write a screenplay back nofilmschool backslash semicolon, all that stuff. Okay. <laughs> You can find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Charles Hain, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. I have a show about regional dislocation, uh, Midwesterners coming to the big city and finding it disorienting called Salty Pirate. You can check it out at saltypirate.tv and Amazon Prime. Uh, I also made a joke earlier about how I haven't written much on the website, but I have three articles coming out on the website soon, including one about a machine learning tool that I can't talk about, but is genuinely the first time I was like, holy shit, AI is coming for the film industry. This is exciting. So I cannot wait to, uh, I I did the demo for it and I was like, yeah, this is some legit changing the workflow stuff from robots and AI. And yeah, it's a little scary. I'll admit it. Uh, I'm not too big to say that. Um, So yeah, that's been the No Film School podcast. We'll see you guys all next week. Bye.